0: Numbers, the, the, the 21st chapter, and uh, this is a story uh, through the book of Numbers where the children of Israel had been brought out of Egypt and now they've been wandering and traveling in the wilderness. And uh, this has been a long time coming, this, by the time they get to these verses, it's been a fair journey, it's been a long time. And so we're going to start here in the fourth verse and it says this, Numbers 4, I'm sorry, Numbers 21, verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Some places it says they became impatient, but they became discouraged. They didn't have a lot of courage. You know, when people get discouraged things start to change. Nobody here, because you guys never get discouraged. But this will be a great message for you to share with other people who do, because we're pretty awesome, I know. But, you know, discouraged means to take courage away. You're just bummed. It's not turning out like you thought. And think about this. These people were designed by God to be his people, he delivered them by a strong hand, the Bible said, meaning strong demonstrations out of Egypt, and, and, and now they're going to their promised land, they've made some mistakes, and they're on this journey that is now taking a while. Do you know your Christian journey will take a while? It's really not that long in the big scope of things compared to eternity, but it'll take a while. So you have to be careful along the way, too. These people had seen miracles, seen all kinds of things, and it said they became discouraged on the way. Uh, It didn't say they were thrilled. (laughs) They got discouraged along the way. Verse 5 said, And then the people spoke against God. Something gets wrong when somebody starts talking against God. Just remember that. Uh, Some kind of perspective has gotten tweaked. You know, when, when a family member goes through something and something harsh happens and then people get mad at God? It wasn't God. You know, we talk about God being a good God, but what happens is people... Uh, sometimes that we trust, attribute things to God that don't belong to him. You know, I remember years ago when I was working as a superintendent, some people came to me and uh, said, you know, hey, these people are talking about you, you know, that, that just some wild stuff. They, they started saying I was a racist, other people said, yeah, these people, are. Ma- you're making these people run around these buildings. I used to do big commercial construction. And so if they weren't working, these are things that we're told. Y- y- you know, you'll make them run around this building. Well, at the time, I was working on a building that makes toilet parts. The company Fluidmaster, we were doing their headquarters. It's a big building. Inside the manufacturing building is 214,000 square feet of office space. That's bigger than department stores. That's just the office space. So to make somebody run around the building, you're talking about a little bit of exercise. And this was a foreman that came to me. And he's under me, and, and he tells me, he said, you know, so what's the deal? And he's upset. I said, what do you mean, what's the deal? You know, I hear you're doing this and doing this. And I said, I said do you believe what they were saying? And uh, he had started believing this stuff. I said, well, do you believe that I'm a racist? You know, he's of a different ethnicity, you know, ethnic group. And I said to him, you've worked with me long enough. You should know my character. And he goes, yeah, you're right. You've always treated me fair. You've always treated everybody fair. And then I said, well, you know me. I'm about making a dollar on the job for the company because I've said this. The more I can put in somebody else's pocket, the more they have to offer me. Instead of me just saying, well, you need to give me something, why don't I put something in their pocket by working hard and getting people to work hard and get a profit, and then they'll like what's in their pocket, and then if they feel there's value in what's in their pocket, they'll recognize they got it from me. And then if I'm going to go somewhere else, then they'll think, wait a minute, then what's in my pocket goes too. We'll pay him some money. But you don't always hear that today, right? Well, you pay me some money, and I'll show you what you can do. No, put some money in their pocket, and they'll know what you can do, and they'll know how it benefits. And so he said, yeah, it did seem strange that you were making people run around the building if they weren't working hard. You know how the whole thing started? guy came up to me. They knew I was the highest person in the field in this company, and they happened to work with me. Somebody encouraged them. Go ask him what you can do to move up in the company. I said, well, you want my honest opinion? I said, I'll be straight with you. If you want to move up in the company, you're not going to be that fast at what you do right now. I said, that's not a knock. You just don't know everything. You can't go as fast. So I said, if you want to really move up and work and get work done, and get some close to what other people are doing, you're going to have to think different. I said, you want me to tell you what you need to do? Some of these jobs, you know, buildings are like a quarter mile long. I said, if you walk over to your truck and then you walk back, somebody else can do that, and when they go back to work, they're working so fast they're going to get a bunch done. I said, if you'll jog there and jog back, your slowness will be compensated because you hustled. And then it'll look like because you're not as far along that you can really get something done and you can get stuff done at the same level as some of these other people because they're just walking. I said, that will increase your value. Then when you get your speed up, if you keep doing that, then you're going to outperform them all. So now I'm making people run around the building who aren't working hard. And none of this stuff was true. But their perspective, you know, these rumors started. And, you know, sometimes there's been rumors about God, about what He does and how He's just this and all these things. And people get mad at God, and He's the good one, not the bad one. You with me? People didn't amen. <laughs> it's the truth. Read the Bible. Jesus said... If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said, I never do anything unless I see my Father do it. So everything we saw happening in the earth was God through Jesus. He was reflecting Him perfectly to mankind. And so when people get a wrong idea about God, they need to go back and look at Jesus' life, and then they can get a true image and not just what people have said. Oh, the Lord took this loved one of mine... He just needed another angel in heaven. That's stupid. (laughs) Serious. Seriously dumb. You don't turn into an angel when you get to heaven for one. We're actually in the Bible, we're in a higher class of being than angels. You with me? We're higher in God's eyes than angels are. So... We don't go there and get demoted. It's a promotion, so to speak. You know, we get transformed. You know, things change. But that being said, people make these statements and they don't know, and then God's not taking people. God's not down knocking people off of motorcycles and, you know, making cars crash. You know, like we're like some big ant farm With some wild kid who's got a magnifying glass, you know, and he's burning a few and drowning a few of these ants. That's not God. Somebody said, that sounds stupid. Yeah, but so do those statements because they're connected. You with me? If you'll read in the Bible what Jesus attributed, remember the woman who was bent over? He said, Dought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for these 14 years, be loosed from this infirmity? Again and again, he attributed to evils and ills in life, to not God, but to an adversary or foolish mistakes of men. You with me? Or ignorance. Some people stayed in a certain place because of their ignorance. You with me? So the greatest enemy to a believer really is going to be ignorance and to humanity. Well, it's the truth, right? Hosea 4, six said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding. Why would that be? Because we might accept something that is not genuine or wrong or could hold us in a place where we shouldn't be held. So anyway, these people got discouraged, and they started talking against God. But God was the one who delivered them. God was the one who was providing manna for them. God was trying to direct them to go forward and go to the place He wanted them. And they, the Bible said they actually had rebelled. But it said they got discouraged along the way. And what's so awesome is God didn't get mad at him. You with me? He didn't. If you'll read in the Old Testament, which some people see a real harsh God, if you'll read, every time the people did wrong, it would be like if you were speeding. Don't get mad at a policeman if he pulls you over. These stupid policemen. I can't believe them. Yeah, well, if you're going 95, in a school zone, you know, or a parking lot, they just might pull you over and not be pleased with you. All they're doing is enforcing a rule that's set in place already. You with me? And if it's not violated, you're okay. That's like a teacher gives you an F. No, you give yourself an F. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Yes. That's why you're supposed to turn those papers in and stuff like that. You with me? And so some rules are just already set in place that if people violate the rules, things can happen. You with me? And they're not always God, and it's not always the devil. One time, you know, there's an interesting uh, stories in Luke. Luke. I'm going to get back to my notes here. But in Luke... Well, I haven't even got to them yet. I got to numbers. But in Luke's gospel, one time Jesus said, Were these people more wicked than any other? And then he made this statement about these people who had been killed and sacrificed by these false religious people who had killed others. And then he said... These 17 people that had died in this tower that was being built and it fell and crushed them. He said, were they any more evil? It's interesting. He gives a few things. And they would really help people today to recognize what can be a motivating factor when it's not God and it's not the devil. False religions can cause all kinds of problems. Man's approach toward God on his own terms, those people were killed in the Bible. Jesus said the ones that were killed weren't more wicked than any other people. But there was a motivating factor that was driving man to do it. And um, then we see these people built this tower and it fell and killed people. That wasn't the devil and that wasn't God. That was human error. You with me? Like we have quality control on certain things in, in, in the airline industry, but sometimes people get laxed, and it's not God, and it's not the devil. It's human error, and they just don't prepare a part right and do something, and they just let it go, and the plane goes down. Now let me say something. God can guide a believer away from all that stuff. You with me? But it does give answers to why some things happen because some people don't have answers and they get bitter and they get discouraged and they get angry at God and it's really misguided. You with me? So anyway, they were discouraged on the way and then the people spoke against uh, God, verse 5, and against Moses. Why have you, this is what they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? No, he didn't. He was bringing them up to bring them to a promised land. For there is no food, but they were having manna, rain from heaven. They just didn't like what they had. And there's no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread, and it would rain down. That's pretty supernatural. That'd be like eating donuts every day. I mean... <laughs> and they're from God, so they've got to be good, and they're like tired of donuts. I'd be like, this is awesome. You could have donuts. I'll just donuts, donuts, donuts. And they're like, Ugh. people would probably complain about steak, can't help everybody. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents, and literally he permitted the fiery serpents. You go read through how some of it's written in the Old Testament where he said, if you do this and this, then this won't come on you. It wasn't that he sent it. It was permitted. They opened the door. <coughs> Notice this. They fe- it, he, so he, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, but, uh, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. They were there the whole time, but they didn't affect them. Matter of fact, if you go back and read, nobody would cast their young. Nobody would have miscarriage. If they would obey God, there would be health. But what's interesting here is verse 7. It says, therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. That took some guts. Hey, I was talking about you. Uh, I was talking about you. We were talking about you. Talking about burning ears. His were probably red. He said, Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now, the Lord didn't take them away because they were there. You ever go out in the desert? There are snakes out there. They're there all the time. There's different things out there. And he didn't take them away. They were there, but they were protected. But he did something. Notice this. They said, that they would take away the serpents from among them. And then notice this, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it, or a bronze or bright brazen serpent, it says, and set it on the pole, or on a pole. Set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten... So in other words, there are going to be people who are bitten when he looks at it, shall live. In other words, they would be healed. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on the pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. In other words, if he would fix his gaze on this, he would get healed and live. But it wasn't that way before, but now God set this up. What does this look like? Well, you know, we live in a country right now that is just bending history or trying to, but they can't. They can't remove God, and they can't remove all signs of the influence through our nation. You know, you kind of laugh a little bit, but You know, we don't want God in our school. We don't want to talk about the Lord. We can't have any of this. And we just got done with Thanksgiving. And so all the people who didn't want God, didn't want Jesus in the schools, didn't want any of that, the kids all dressed up like Indians are pilgrims. And that's okay. But we don't want God. But you know what a pilgrim is? Look at the definition. One who leaves A land for a sacred land for religious purposes. Then you ever been to the pharmacy? Ever seen an ambulance? Ever been to a hospital? There is a shaft or a post or a a rod with a serpent wrapped around it. That is this right here. That's where it came from. That's where it came from. So you see it on all kinds of medical things. That is this image. What was it? It was an image of something to come, actually. And so he said, if you'll get your gaze fixed on the right thing, there will be a solution in your life. Now, what's interesting is this. Turn with me. So God gave a, a solution if they wouldn't focus on the problem. Because, see, they had got their minds off of God. They would gotten their minds off of God. The things that were right off the blessings he was sending and who he was, and now they're looking at the natural. We're out in this wilderness. They even started complaining, talking about the land where they had come from. And God was the solution. At first, they were like, Woohoo, this is awesome. I mean, that place they came out of was not good. And they had just got their attention and their mind was just so filled with the wrong thing that it started affecting what came out of their mouth and they just got discouraged. This is an answer for discouragement for people. If you find yourself discouraged, pay attention to what you're focusing on. You'll find that you cannot be focusing on the answer that God has and be discouraged. You can't, because you'll be thinking, man, God's got this. I prayed. He's working. But if you get your mind focusing on the wrong thing, it will get you to a place you don't want to be. You with me? You get discouraged. You get discouraged. Joshua, when he was about to lead this bunch... The discouraged bunch, a couple million people, minus a few because of serpent intervention. He's, but they're multiplying along the way, so it could have been a lot more. And uh, God, when he talked to him in Joshua, told him, if you're going to lead this people, go read Joshua, the first chapter. He said, be of good courage. Be strong and of a good courage. It's not in my notes, so I'm not going to turn there. He said, be strong and of a good courage. And he told them, you know, be courageous. And then he told them something to help them to stay this way. In the eighth verse, he talked about, you know, meditating in the word day and night that you might observe to do all that's written in then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. If you'll meditate or ponder, not on the problems, but on me and what I've said. He said, you'll make your own way of success. In other words, God will be able to work and do something in your life, but you have a role to play. See, these people kept looking back, drawing back, and God wanted to put a marker there so they could focus and get the answers they need. I remember it's been 10 years ago. One morning I woke up. It was before I moved here. And I woke up and my eyes were not even open and as plain as somebody was standing in the room way down on the inside of me, my eyes weren't even open and I heard these words and I was half asleep. If your mind is not on the answer, it is on the wrong thing. Well, that is substantiated by Scripture. And you need to and I need to keep our minds on the answer And it will help us to overcome discouragement and all kinds of other things. And it will help us to walk out this life the way he wants us to walk it out. Turn to John, the third chapter. John 3. And we're going to read an interesting set of scriptures here. And they're connected to what we just finished reading. John 3. And we'll begin reading... In the 14th verse. John 3 verse 14. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, we know from the Bible and learning from the Bible, the New Testament says that the Old Testament had a bunch of types and shadows. You know what a shadow is, right? One person. Let me explain this to you. On a sunny day, if it's not like 12 o'clock in the afternoon, but like kind of like 9, 30, 10 in the morning or 3 or 4 in the afternoon, there's this thing they call a shadow and what it is, is an object, when the light hits it, casts an image of the object. But here's the thing. The object that is cast is never exactly or as clear as the object itself. Meaning this, if you've got a tree, um, you can look at a shadow if the tree is blocked and not really see exactly what kind of tree it is. You might be able to go, oh, that's a pine tree, it's like this. But if it's shaped like a fruit tree, and you could see round things, you don't know if it's a pomegranate, you don't know if it's an apple, you don't know if it's an orange maybe, you know. But what happens is the shadow is cast. And the Bible said that there are shadows or types in the Old Testament. So what that means is, where is the shadow that is casting What is the object that's making that shadow? If there are types and shadows, what is the object? Jesus was the object. That was just a shadow. Because he said like that, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You with me? How did he get lifted up? He got put on a cross, on a tree, on a board. He got put up on some wood. He was nailed there. So everybody could look at him. He died and he rose again. Back then, they would focus on that. That's why Paul said that he didn't want to know anything except for Christ and him crucified. Why? Because of the work that took place there. The work that took place there. Actually, it was an actual tremendous work. And if people would focus on what happened there after you're saved, it would change. I'm tempted to turn to another verse here in, in uh, Galatians. But, uh, uh, but maybe I'll get there. And uh, Galatians 6. And you can keep your place there in John 3, because we'll, we'll, we'll turn right back there. Um, Galatians 6. Notice this in verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he boast and make his fascination and focus there? Notice the next part of the verse. By whom, or by Jesus in this cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, my nature has changed. I'm not alive to sin anymore. I'm not alive to this stuff anymore. This stuff in the world has died to me. He had a nature change. That took place when he gave his life to the Lord. Something changed in him. And his fascination and hunger with the fallen world had totally changed. That's why the very next verse said this. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, which was works of the law, nor uncircumcision, meaning just a Gentile person, avails anything. In other words, In this life with God or in Christ Jesus, doing works or not doing works is not what gets you saved. It's not what makes you prevail in life. Notice the next part, but a new creation. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's a spiritual recreation. What happens is it changes everything in your spirit, not in your mind. But in your spirit, not in your body, but in your spirit. And there's something way down inside of you that loses its fascination for the world. That loses its fascination. It's called eternal life coming in you and changing you. Go back to uh, John 3. And so he was fascinated with this because of the change. But the Bible has many changes that occurred. And it's real interesting if you look at the shadow, would a shadow have more in it than the very object? I think not. It's not as full, but the real object is full. And this object we're about to look at is full. And the object is Jesus. Because the Bible said he bore our sins. He bore different things in his body when he died on the tree. But notice this in the 14th verse. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15. That whosoever believes in him should not perish. Remember what was happening to them? They were perishing. They were perishing. That they would not perish. Perish but have eternal life. In other words, they'd ha- get the divine life of God in them. Right? Jesus said, he who has the son, John ten ten. Actually, I'm quoting the second half of the verse. He said in the first part, the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Actually, I was starting to quote 1 John 5, 12. He who has the son has life or divine life. You out there? But he said, I've come that you might have eternal life, his life in you. Way down on the inside of you. When you got saved, you got life. The Bible said, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What kind of life? It's not talking about a party. It's talking about the very life that's in heaven in God comes inside of a man or a woman when they receive Jesus. It changes everything. Everything from the inside out. You with me? I mean, not trying to be careful here. But I'm the one preaching. Linda will make faces, so I'll walk over here. But have you ever had like a smelly room in your house? That room sometimes? People close the door so it doesn't escape. But it still smells. And it just seems sometimes some rooms, I'm talking about the washing room, the washing machine, room with the washing machine. Okay, maybe I'm not. I'm just talking any room. And that smell tries to get out, different smells. It's because it's in there. Sometimes it's just not out. But you open that door and yikes. But when you get eternal life in you, there's something in you. Now, don't get distracted by that story and go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. But you get eternal life inside of you. There is a way. God doesn't want it all closed up on the inside of you. He wants it out affecting you. And he wants it to affect other people. It is real life. It's life from heaven. And it's not just something you get when you get there. It's what you possess now. That's why Corinthians said you have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the glory should not be of you. In other words, it's not about you, but should be of God. You've got something when you give your life to the Lord. It's in you. you got eternal life. And so notice this. He said, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. He's still talking about perishing. But have everlasting life. He shall have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world. The world's already lost. They don't need to be condemned. They're already in trouble. Just like the children of Israel were already in trouble. He didn't need to tell them, you're in trouble. They knew it. He said, here's the answer. And that's what Jesus was. He was the answer that came on the scene. And so He said He didn't send His Son in the world to condemn the world but that the world through him. In other words, this guy who died on the tree, just like the brazen serpent. And isn't it true in the Christian walk, people who lose their, their vitality in the Lord lose the focus of the Lord? and they get so, you know, they were just so on fire for the Lord one time, and everything was about Jesus, and man, I'm going to serve him, I'm going to do what he wants me to do, and then they get distracted, and their attention changes, and they start looking at everything but Jesus, and then they're no longer talking about Jesus. Man, then we just need to get our eyes back on him. You with me? We just need to get our attention back on him. But he said that that the world wouldn't have to perish, just like those people didn't have to perish. But notice it says that through him they might be saved. Might be saved. So here's that word saved in the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have, you know, like a Vines Expository Dictionary, and I have some different things, and now you can look at these things online and look at the literal meaning of that word saved. He didn't want them to perish. He wanted them saved. He wanted them saved. He didn't want them to perish. He wanted them saved. If they would look at him, focus on him, accept him, he wanted them saved. What does that mean? Well, we can get our own opinion of what it means, but what does that literally mean, saved? You know, it's not like saving, like preserving something, well, saves those leftovers, I'm going to want those later. It's not like that. It's something way bigger. It literally is the word "sodzo" is how it's pronounced, even though it's S-O-Z-O. Somebody said, well, that's not how I've heard it pronounced. Well, I read the actual way to pronounce it. That's why I'm just being confident. I'll tell you what, when I read the Old Testament, when you get to the Jehaziel and all that stuff, I just pronounce it real strong how I think, and then everybody's like, yeah, that's how it is. Then you hear somebody else, and they're like, that's not how it is. I heard him say it this way. Don't take my word on it, okay? I just say it, and then people go, yeah, that's, it's Jehagiel. I'm not sure exactly, but I know what the meaning of this word means, Okay? We won't get caught up in that. Well, I just need to talk to you after service today. (laughs) That word is actually like this. Who cares? You out there? Notice this is what the word means. It literally means to save, keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction or from one who's in injury or peril. To save a suffering one from perishing, one suffering from disease, to make well, heal, restore, to health. To preserve one who is in danger of destruction, to save and rescue. To save in the technical biblical sense. It literally means to deliver from the penalties of the Mosaic judgment or Messianic judgment meaning from what Christ, you know, if people don't accept Christ, there is a penalty. But anybody who accepts him, all these things can happen. You know, here's an interesting thought. What if Moses would have given the answer, but Moses never passed on the answer? Then people might have thought it was... God who is doing this thing in their life, bringing them up into the promised land. But if Moses failed to tell everything God had said, then different opinions about God could have maintained their status. In other words, they could have just been a certain way, and people would have had different opinions about God because Moses didn't tell everything that God said. You with me? In other words, he could have known something or didn't know something, but he did. If he didn't tell it, even though he put up the brazen serpent, people wouldn't have known they could have been healed. It, maybe by accident, one here or there could have got an answer or been delivered or protected. What if we have never heard the truth? We could suffer ill, wrong, and like I said, there's different reasons and things like that. But what's interesting is, How much has been spoken against these truths? Say, well, that's done, that's finished, that's gone. But what does God have to say? What does His Word say? You with me? What does His Word say? Turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to go through a couple of verses real quick. Isaiah 53. God sees the end from the beginning. He says stuff before it ever happens sometimes. You ever known something was going to happen? You just knew it on the inside before it ever happened? He's still in business today. God ever given you a plan for your life, a a dream, and you knew it was from Him on the inside about the future, but it hasn't come to pass yet? Because God still knows the end from the beginning. You with me? Isaiah 53 was years and years and years, hundreds and you know, thousands something years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Notice this in verse 2. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form... Or comeliness, and when he, uh, we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is actually a foretelling of Jesus and him being whipped and beaten and crucified on when he was nailed to the cross and when he was whipped before. It says this: He was despised and rejected by men. Verse. Uh, well, we'll keep reading through there. A man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. Here's what's interesting. That word sorrow literally means pains, and the word grief means sickness. If you have a number in your Bible, and it says L-I-T in a number, you just go to the margin, it'll tell you. That's what it literally means. And then it goes on to say, and we hid... As it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we did not esteem him or lift him up to his rightful place. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs or diseases and carried our sorrows or pains. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was actually wounded for our transgressions. That's why he died. And he was bruised for our iniquities or our wrongdoings. The chastisement, when he was whipped and beaten, was for our peace, was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed when he was whipped. Now, I've heard people say this before. Turn to Matthew 8. I've heard people say this, well, this, that was just spiritual healing, not physical healing. And uh, because sometimes people who have initials in front of their name, people believe them more instead of searching the scriptures. And you know, you get somebody with a name that says like PhD, and somebody's like, whoa, he's got a PhD. That must mean he knows something. Maybe that just stands for posthole digger. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't mean he knows everything. Right? Matthew 8, verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. That's how some of the healings happened when Jesus was on the earth. So does that mean it all stopped? What about after Jesus left? Turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. First Peter the second chapter and the twenty fourth verse says this. Who himself, this is talking about Jesus. Actually, the verse before is quoting from back there in Isaiah also. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we now being dead to sins might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. In other words, it was paid for already. When Jesus died, and when, it was already paid for. Just like sins were paid for. But let me ask you this. Do forgiveness of sins automatically come to the world though it was paid for? No. They have to be appropriated by faith. That's why the Bible said in, in, in Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, you have to accept it and believe it. 12 out of the 19 times that Jesus performed a notable miracle on somebody in the Bible, he attributed it to their faith and not to him. As a matter of fact, one time he didn't even know who the person was in Mark 5 who got healed. He said, who touched me? And he looked and the disciples said, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? But the Bible said... That the woman, he, then he kept looking. It said because he knew virtue or power had gone out of him. It said the woman, fearing trembling, knowing what was done in her body, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You know, it starts in the 24th verse and goes down. But we jumped in a little later. And he said, daughter, you know, because he talked about how when she touched him, she was immediately made whole. He said, daughter, be of good cheer. He didn't even know who it was until he asked. He said, your faith made you whole. In other words, you can trust God yourself and accept what was paid for. But what's interesting is we haven't always been taught this. And our focus in the world is always, for the most part, on the problem and not on the solution. And therefore, faith is weak. That's why in Hebrews 12, it said, looking unto Jesus, the author. In other words, get your imagination and your focus on him. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the starter, the originator of your faith, and finisher. Where we keep our attention has a great deal. If you pray for something and you keep focusing on the problem, your faith is not going to be helped. Read Romans the fourth chapter in the 19th, 20th, and through there, when it talks about following the faith of Abraham, it said he did not consider his own body now dead yet the or the deadness of Sarah's womb. It said he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And the Bible talked about how he got his focus on the answer. And that's really what this is teaching to look to the solution. And get your mind on the answer. Let's close with this right now before we receive communion. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. This is a time that was um, where the church was being taught about communion. And uh, there's quite a bit in here, and we're just going to look at two verses before we receive communion. But I think sometimes, like many things, uh, things have become tradition and more of, we've well, we got to do that, we got to do that, we've got to do that. What if we came in and we just sang songs the whole service one Sunday morning and we just worshiped God and then we just left? What if one morning we came in and it just was right, we started to sing or we didn't even start singing, we just got up and didn't just preach the whole time? What if we just got up and said, no, we're not going to use music today. We're just going to lift our hands and we're all going to praise God. Somebody said, well, you can't do that. We can get ingrained in traditions that maybe aren't always good. We need to know why we do what we do. And so we're going to look at what communion is. Actually, it's about everything I just talked about. Matter of fact, he told us many are weak and sick because they don't understand what was purchased. And he was writing to Christians. And some people die premature because they don't discern, which means understand the Lord's body or what he did. That's the Bible. It's a lot better than just saying you never know what the Lord's about to do. Oh, no, you can actually know quite a bit that the Lord's about to do. You with me? What if we use that science on everything? Well, would you like to pray and receive the Lord today? You've never given your life to him. I would like to do that. Well, let's pray. You never know what he'll do. He might save you, and he might not. (laughs) Because you never know what the Lord's going to do. Well, that'd be really great. That would be just wonderful. What happened to you at church? I don't know. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what the Lord's going to do. I prayed, and uh, I don't know what the numbers on the dice rolled, but hey, when I get to heaven, maybe I'll get in. Maybe I'm just going to burn in hell for eternity. Because you never know what the Lord's going to do. No, no, you do know what the Lord's going to do. And you can be confident in Him, what He's going to do. You with me? If we use that kind of science, what kind of Christianity would we have, especially when the Bible is way confident? At least the version I read (laughs) called the Holy Bible. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. It said, when he had given thanks, let me go back to 23. So we'll read three verses. Forgive me. Actually, we're going to read four. God's always about increase. So, you know, Well, instead of two verses, we'll go to four. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he gave thanks. He broke it. Now, understand... Now, I'm not going to read the rest yet because I'm going to explain something. The time they took this was during the Passover meal. Jesus was actually called the Passover lamb. The, the shadow of it is pictured in the Old Testament when the children of Israel slaughtered a lamb, put the blood over the doors, and ate the meat. And it strengthened them through the journey that we read about. And um, that being said, that that this right here, this bread he's eating was a unleavened bread, like a cracker, you know, like a saltine cracker, but just no salt. So during that Passover meal, which they, if you remember, that's what they were eating at the time they took communion or had this bread and and drank the fruit of the vine, it was an unleavened bread. So when we take communion, we use like a little wafer or or a like a masa bread, I think is how you pronounce it, you know, and and it's interesting that bread they have to pierce it to to make it right and so anyway we break that up it's unleavened bread and it was a picture of something and so that's why we take that kind of bread it wasn't like a big loaf of bread and you know like taking chunks and there was i you know going to town there was a purpose in it and so this bread is actually not anything holy. You with me? There's nothing holy about it. As far as I know, we, either, we used to buy it at Bashes. We might have got it from Fry's. We didn't get it from the holy section. We got it from the shelf. But the symbol is there. It's not just the action, and that's where people fail. It's the faith that's released in it. It's a place where you can connect your faith to and say what Jesus paid for when he took stripes in his body. I'm receiving this. What he took in, and by shedding his blood and bearing our sins, I can get guilt free. I can walk in divine peace. So when we take the juice, it's representative of the blood. And when we take the bread, it's representative of the, which it's like a cracker, it is representative of his body. That was broken and when it was whipped. So it says here, and when he had given thanks. Actually, we'll go back and read it. Someone's like, he just likes reading verses. That's what we're going to do here, I guess. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which was broken for you. Notice what he said. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, get your mind on what I have done. Isn't that what happened on the with the brazen serpent on the pole? Get your focus on what I have done. In the same manner... He also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. You know what a covenant is? It's a will. It's what he bought and paid for. It's the enforcement of it. He said, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant. I'm sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, notice In remembrance of me. Remember what he purchased with his body. Remember what he purchased with his blood. So we're going to take communion. You can go ahead and come up here, Amber. We're going to take communion. And when we take it, what we're going to do is we'll hand these elements around. you just sit where you're at. You can just take a piece of bread because they'll hand the bread by first. And then they'll hand a tray with, with um, Welch's grape juice. Somebody's like, was it wine? No, it's the fruit of the vine. It's the same thing, just not fermented. And you can just hold it if you want to take communion. You're not forced to take it. But when we do it, the Bible tells us we should do it in a certain manner. That's why we teach about it. So it doesn't become a snack to hold you over before Red Robin. You're like, man, that was really small. It would have been nice for a bigger piece of bread. No, we're doing it to get our attention on the Lord, to get our focus on the Lord. And so when we take that bread, we're actually saying, just like I take this bread, I'm believing I have what you paid for. If I need peace in my mind, I believe when I take this juice that what you paid for, I have peace. Peace. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. No guilt. There shouldn't be guilt on any Christian. You shouldn't live in condemnation. Not when the blood's been shed. It's just a great way for us to get our attention back on the brazen serpent, but not the brazen one, the actual object, Jesus himself.